Hotel of the Latin Quarter, the chief merit of which was its nearness to the cheap and excellent restaurant where the two Americans had made acquaintance. But Garnet's assiduity in frequenting the place arose, in the end, less from the excellence of the food than from the enjoyment of his old friend's conversation. Amid the flashy sophistications of the Parisian life to which Garnet's trade introduced him, the American sage's conversation had the crisp and homely flavour of a native dish, one of the domestic compounds for which the exiled palate is supposed to yearn. It was a mark of the old man's impersonality that, in spite of the interest he inspired, Garnet had never got beyond idly wondering who he might be, where he lived, and what his occupations were. He was presumably a bachelor, a man of family ties, however relaxed, and there was about him a boundless desultoriness which renewed Garnet's conviction that there is no one on earth as idle as an American who is not busy. From certain allusions, it was plain that he lived many years in Paris, yet he had not taken the trouble to adapt his tongue to the local inflections, but spoke French with an accent of one who has formed his notion of the language from a phrase-book. The city itself seemed to have made as little impression on him as its speech. He appeared to have no artistic or intellectual curiosities, to remain untouched by the complex appeal of Paris, while preserving, perhaps the more strikingly from his very detachment, that odd American astuteness which seems the fruit of innocence rather than of experience. The exhibition of human folly never ceased to divert him, and though his examples of it seemed mainly drawn from the columns of one daily paper, he found there matter for endless variations on his favourite theme. If this monotony of topic did not weary the younger man, it was because he fancied he could detect under it the tragic note of the fixed idea, of some great moral upheaval which had flung his friend stripped and starving on the desert island of the little restaurant where they met. He hardly knew wherein he read this revelation, whether in the shabbiness of the sage's dress, the impersonal courtesy of his manner, or the shade of apprehension which lurked indescribably in his suspicious eye. There were moments when Garnet could only define him by saying that he looked like a man who had seen a ghost. An apparition almost as startling had come to Garnet himself, in the shape of the mauve note handed to him by his concierge as he was leaving the hotel for luncheon. Not that, on the face of it, a missive announcing Mrs. Sam Newell's arrival at the Ritz's and her need of his presence there that day at five carried any mark of the portentous. It was not her being at the Ritz's that surprised him. The fact was that she was chronically hard up, and had once or twice lately been so harshly confronted with the consequences as to accept, indeed solicit, a loan of five pounds from him. This circumstance, as Garnet knew, would never be allowed to affect the general tenor of her existence. If one came to Paris, where could one go but to Ritz's? Did he see her in some grubby hole across the river? Did he see her in some grubby hole across the river? Or in a family pension near the Place de l'Etoile? There was no affectation in her tendency to gravitate toward what was costliest and most conspicuous. In doing so, she obeyed one of the profoundest instincts of her nature and it was another instinct which taught her to gratify the first at any cost, even to that of dipping into the pocket 
of an impecunious journalist. It was a part of her strength, and of her charm too, that she did such things naturally, openly, without any of the grimaces of dissimulation or compunction. Her recourse to Garnet had of course marked a specially low ebb in her fortunes. Save in moments of exceptional dearth, she had richer sources of supply, and he was nearly sure that by running over the society column of the Paris Herald he should find an explanation, not perhaps of her presence at Ritz's, but of her means of subsistence there. What perplexed him was not the financial but the social aspect of the case. When Mrs. Newell had left London in July, she had told him that, between cows and Scotland, she and Hermie were provided for till the middle of October. After that, as she put it, they would have to look about. Why then, when she had in her hand the opportunity of living for three months,